Uh, as Todd said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. It's good to see you all. This morning, excited to join with you as we open up God's Word together. We're continuing in the book of Kings, Old Testament book, as we're studying uh, together one of Israel's great prophets, the life of Elijah. As is our custom here at Christ Central, I'd like to invite you to stand for the, as we give reverence to God's Word. We're in 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 8. This is God's word. So King Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him. And said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb the mount of God. The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. We ask that you would now speak to us through your word, that you would reveal yourself to us once again. Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Back at the beginning of 2021, in, pre- in preparation for the relaunch of the church's adoption and foster care ministry, myself and Allison Worsham, the leader of the ministry, went through a pretty rigorous training with an organization called Promise 686. It's an organization that exists to help churches walk well alongside families who are adopting and fostering. And Allison and I, it was like drinking from a fire hydrant, there was so much and it was really, really helpful. But the part of the training that I found most insightful and, and honestly most discouraging was when they talked about the data that exists around the emotional toll that comes as a result of being separated from one's birth parents. I think if I'm honest, I've naively wanted to believe that if you just plug some really good parents into that void that all will be well. And yet what the research has shown is that regardless of how good the adoptive parents are, the adoptive child may continually struggle to trust the intentions and the heart of the adoptive parents. 
Even if there's overwhelming evidence that the adoptive parents are genuinely and profoundly for the child, the child may find that almost impossible to believe. If you've been with us the the past few weeks, what we've seen is that Elijah has a lot of reasons to believe that his heavenly father is genuinely and profoundly for him. The recurring theme in Elijah's life up until this point is that God always shows up for this guy. If you will, let's take a little trip down memory lane. Chapter 17, when Elijah first enters the scene, God institutes a nationwide drought. And yet in the midst of this drought, he leads Elijah to this mysterious brook that somehow is unaffected by the drought. Not only that, not only that, God commissions some birds to do this Uber Eats delivery for Elijah and they bring meat in the morning and meat in the evening. But then the brook dries up, verse 8, but don't worry, God sends Elijah to a widow, but this widow has no food. She has enough food for one final meal, but when Elijah is there, every time they go to the jar of oil and the jug of flour, the jar of flour and the jug of oil, they're full every morning. And last week we saw chapter 18, Elijah's going toe-to-toe with the prophets of Baal. It's a cook-off. Whoever cooks the most steak wins. And round one, the, the god of the prophets of Baal, they can't even get the fire started, which is not good for a cook-off. But Elijah's God shows up, and he not only cooks the, the steak, the cow, but the wood and the altar and licks up all the water. God is showing off again. God is faithful. Elijah has all this evidence to believe that God is holding him in the palm of his hands, and yet verse 1, chapter 19, somehow Elijah loses sight of God's faithfulness. Elijah, of all people, begins to doubt, to doubt God's goodness, God's faithfulness, God's ability to protect and preserve his people. And instead of believing that God will show up once again and protect Elijah from the wicked king Jezebel, he fears for his life and he heads for the hills. So this morning, I want to look at that with you. I want to dive deep into this unexpected bout of doubt that Elijah faces and see what lessons there might be for doubters like you and like me. Three things that our text highlights this morning, the reason for doubt, the response to doubt, and the remedy for doubt. The reason for doubt, the response to doubt, and the remedy for doubt. Let's dive in. I've already highlighted all the reasons why Elijah should not have doubted God But now I want to show you why I think it makes perfect sense for Elijah to doubt in this moment. There's nothing here in chapter 19 that would give us reason to believe that Elijah would doubt, which is why we have to go all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 2. It's here in Genesis chapter 2 that we see a picture of God and man in right relationship with one another, and we see Adam and Eve join this intimacy both with each other and with God. Intimacy that is evidenced by unashamed nakedness. Verse 25, the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. I don't know about you, but the list of people that I can be naked with and not ashamed is very short. In fact, for me, that doesn't really extend beyond my family. 
You, you know, family, when done right, is a safe place. It's a place where we can be fully exposed and completely unashamed. Adam and Eve were experiencing this sort of safety and intimacy with God and with each other in Genesis 2, and then something happened. Sin happened. And that safety and that intimacy was marred and shame was introduced. Listen to the relational dynamics between God and Adam and Eve after sin enters the world. This is Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. It says, And Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. See, because of sin, the relational dynamics between God and man change. Still close, but not family in the same way. What does this have to do with Elijah and doubt? Bear with me. We're we're getting there. I want us to now look in the New Testament, words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4. He he paints a picture of the relational dynamics that are offered to God's people after sin messed everything up. This is verse 4. Paul says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive, keyword, adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There's a lot in that text, but what I want to draw your attention to this morning is the relational movement that Paul is describing. The movement from slave to heir, from orphan to adopted son and daughter. What the text says is that although sin has made us slaves and orphans, God graciously responded to our slave status, to our fatherlessness, and moved towards us in adoption. He chose us. He chose you. He made you his own, his child, his son, his daughter, his heir. Which now brings us back to 1 Kings 19 with the answer to the question, why Elijah doubts in spite of God's consistent faithfulness and care of him. The answer is that Elijah, like you and me, is adopted. He's an orphan who has been graciously brought by God into God's family. Which is why in spite of God's goodness, in spite of all that God has done to prove to Elijah that he is for him, that he's got Elijah, Elijah's history of Abandonment, his sin-scarred relationship with God causes him to doubt, to disbelieve in the face of overwhelming proof that God is really for him. Let me drive this home a little bit. Church, how many times has God proven to be faithful in your life? How many times has God showed up when you desperately needed him? For me, the answer to that question is a lot. I've seen God show up in amazing ways in my own life. I've seen God show up in the lives of others. I've seen God show up in your lives, in many of your lives. And yet I can't even count on my fingers the number of times when I'm sitting in my office, I'm working on a sermon, I'm working on a Bible study, and I find myself covered up with doubt, wondering, is God really who he says he is? 
I doubt there's anyone in this room that at some point over the past 18 months has not doubted that God is faithful, that he's got you. Amen? That's not normally where we say amen, right? And yet, church, I think it's so vital that we learn and feel the freedom to share stories of doubt, just like we share stories of God's faithfulness. Because the first step in dealing with our doubt is we have to acknowledge that we've got it. We have to get rid of the happy, clappy, life is good all the time Christianity and we'll be willing to be honest with one another and with God about where we're really at. I wonder if we were honest about our doubt, if we would read verse 4 differently. It says, Elijah asked that he might die, saying, it is enough, God. Take now, O Lord, take away my life. I think we might, instead of looking down our noses at Elijah, demanding that he pull himself together, we might begin to look through our hearts at Elijah and have empathy and know full well how easy it is to get to that place of despair and despondency. Church, we are all orphans. Orphans that by God's grace have been chosen and adopted by God, but orphans nonetheless. And because of that, in spite of God's overwhelming goodness, we doubt. We question whether his love is real, whether his love will remain, whether, if it's, whether or not it's too good to be true. Now, before we move on to what to do with that doubt, I want to first look at what God does with our doubt. This brings us to our second point this morning, the response to doubt. At the men's retreat a few weeks back, our speaker, Chip Dodge, shared something he had re- recently witnessed at Disney World, of all places. He shared a really sad story of a father shaming his son. This father was so upset with his son that he literally kicked the child. But why? Not because his son was being defiant or disrespectful, but according to Chip, simply because the child had made a mistake. The kid goofed, and as a result, he got kicked by his dad in public. Our text argues pretty definitively that doubt is unavoidable. I think we are right to assume that if Elijah doubts, then then we are destined to do the same. But the question remains, what then is God's response to our doubt? Does he shame us like that dad at Disney World? Or is his approach a little bit different? Look again at the text. Remember... Elijah is God's chosen person for this moment in history, and as a result, the future of God's people rests in Elijah's hands. And here in verse 3, we find the chosen one sitting under a tree informing God, hey, I've had enough, God. I'm ready to die. This seems like a perfect opportunity for God to move on from Elijah and find someone else to be the leader of this movement. But look at verse 5. It says, behold, an angel touched Elijah. God sends his representative to, to bring Elijah back, maybe back to life is, is, is what we're looking at here. The angel touched him. He didn't kick him. Now, the Hebrew seems to argue that he gently placed his hands on him. What do you expect from God when you fail to live up to his expectations? Do you find yourself bracing for a a swift kick in the pants? 
As a staff team, we're reading through Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. I want you to listen to how Ortland describes how we anticipate God to respond to our failure. And I want to see if you resonate with this. He says, we project onto Jesus our skewed instincts about how the world works. Human nature dictates that a wealthier, the wealthier a person, the more they tend to look down on the poor. The more beautiful a person, the more they are put off by the ugly. Without realizing what we are doing, we quietly assume that one so high and exalted has corresponding difficulty drawing near to the despicable and unclean. Sure, Jesus comes close to us, we agree, but he holds his nose. Do you ever feel like that? That in your frailty, sure, sure Jesus comes, but I bet he holds his nose when he comes. That's certainly not the picture of verse 5, is it? God moves towards Elijah with gentleness, with compassion, and with patience. Don't miss that the, the first touch isn't enough. The angel stays and he reaches out again, arouses Elijah once again. What would be different if you truly believe that this is how God responds to your frailty, to your humanness? that he moves towards you with gentleness and perseverance, with an intent to, to encourage, not to shame, to build up, not to tear down. The good news is that God can handle your doubts. He can handle your fears. He can handle your hopelessness. It is safe to bring your honest confession to him. Your, I've had enough, God. I simply can't take it anymore. And you can trust that God always moves towards you and not away from you. Which brings us to our third and final point this morning, the, the remedy for doubt. Knowing that God can handle our doubt is huge and it's important, but unfortunately, but unfortunately that doesn't make the doubt go away. I want you to look again with me at the text and listen for what is the thing that ultimately enabled Elijah to overcome the doubt and to move forward. Verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And Elijah rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights. So much meat in that verse. First and foremost, the angel wants Elijah to understand who he is and who God is. Who is Elijah? Well, according to this verse, he's the one who does not possess enough strength for the journey. I know this is not the message you came to hear this morning, but that is who you are also. You are, we are the ones who do not possess enough strength for the journey. We simply don't have what it takes. But that's not all the angel says. He also wants Elijah to understand who God is. Who is God? God is the one who possesses the strength that we need for the journey. In summary, the angel is declaring, Elijah, you aren't God, but you need God. That may be one of the most important truths for us as Christians to embrace, that we aren't God, but we sure as heck need him. And the good news for you and for me is that the one who possesses the strength that we need, he delights to give it to us. Look again at verse 7. The angel says, the, the journey's too great. You don't have what it takes, Elijah. Therefore, you need to arise and eat the food that God has placed in front of you. Church, that's the remedy for our doubt, to eat the food that God has placed in front of you. I love the, the metaphor of eating here. Think about 
the physical act of eating for a moment. To eat is to take something into us that satisfies our hunger, that nourishes and energizes us, that supplies our bodies with nutrients so that we are sustained, so that we can grow, so that we can prosper. In the same way, spiritual eating is to take spiritual food into us, food that nourishes our spirit, that satisfies our spiritual hunger and that nourishes and energizes us spiritually. Food that gives us strength to live out the Christian life. But what is that spiritual food that God has placed in front of you? We don't go here often at Christ Central, but I think the Westminster Confession of Faith is really helpful here, a book that exists to help us understand and apply God's word. The Confession, Catechism Question 88 asks, what are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? That's really flowery language. But, but what the question is, is, is he's saying, where do we as Christians find the strength for the journey? What food must we eat to give us the strength that we need to make it. And this is what the answer is. It says the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacrament, and prayer. Church, the food that that you must eat isn't expensive. It's not hard to get. It's readily available for all who hunger and thirst for it. It's the word. It's the sacrament. And it's prayer. That's the food that God has placed in front of us that we must feast upon that will quench our thirst and will overwhelm our doubt. First, the word. You have to be like Jeremiah who declares, your words, I found them and I ate them and your words became a joy to me and a delight of of my heart. Paul in 1 Timothy says that he was nourished on the truths of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. Second, the sacrament. Church, we must bring our appetite to this table each and every week. I love how one of my seminary professors put it. He says, in the scriptures, we we hear the Father's voice. In the sacrament, we feel the Father's kiss. This morning, my son and a few other... Uh, my son and a few others are going to take communion for the first time. <clears throat> Dang. Mm, sorry. Mm. And I spent some time talking with him last night about, oh, I don't know if I can. <laughs> Dang. Nah. Uh, how much he needs this table. Uh, he doesn't have the strength for the journey. But he can find the strength here. He has to come back every week. And then he proceeds out as Elijah did. Verse 8, going in the strength of the food that God has provided for us. I love how the Heidelberg Catechism talks about the riches that are found here. It says, question 75, as, sur- as surely as I receive from the hand of the one who serves And taste the bread and the cup of the Lord which are given to me as surely the signs of the body and blood of Christ. This is the point I want you to hear. So surely Jesus, he Jesus, feeds and nourishes my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood. That's the promise that when we come here, Jesus feeds and nourishes our souls with his crucified body 
in his shed blood. Lastly, prayer. Remember what happened in in Genesis 3? Following Adam and Eve's sin, they hid. They withdrew from God. So much so that God had to go search for them, call out to them, woo them back to himself. Prayer is the opposite of hiding, isn't it? It's the putting off of our orphanness and embracing our adoption and our access to the Father as sons and his daughters. I love how Calvin says it. He says, the word of God points us to where the treasure is and prayer is digging it up. The word, the sacrament, prayer. The food that God has placed before us to give us the strength for this journey called life. Church, how's your spiritual diet? Have you been eating good spiritual food lately? Or is your mind and heart filled up with Instagram and Netflix, school projects, work demands, parenting woes, investment decisions, and the like? Church, we don't have what we need, but God has placed what we need right in front of us, the word, the sacrament, and prayer. The table is set. The food is warm. All we have to do is take it and feast on it and walk in the strength that God's food provides. I'm so glad that we as a church are taking serious God's call to love and to care for the orphan. My hope and prayer is that this adoption and foster care ministry would flow out of the profound realization that you and I are orphans too. Orphans that are hardwired like Elijah to doubt God's goodness. And yet orphans who have been adopted by a heavenly father who doesn't run away from our doubts, but runs towards them, who reaches out in love and who graciously and faithfully provides us with the food that we need to finish the journey. Let's eat. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for how you have provided for us instead of shaming us when we come to you with doubt. Instead, you feed us with yourself, with your goodness, with your grace, with the good news of the gospel. You've given us your word, you've given us the sacrament, and you've given us access to you through prayer. Father, we're thankful. We pray that you would continue to Give us what we need so that we can be faithful, so that we can continue, continue on in this journey that you've called us to. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.